The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So i am uh, been reading from the book The Mind in the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. Most of you know that. We're getting close to the end of the book. And chapter 19 is called A Matter of Life and Death. And this is really a section, many chapters, on practicing in daily life. So it's not so much about formal sitting practice, but about teachings how to live through the day. Just ordinary teachings on how to use our, our life, our existence. And it's interesting how, you know, I think it pretty obvious how we are literally swimming in a world with living and dying, birth and death, and yet often we're not directly reflecting on this death part of it, that half of the equation. We can be quite exuberant and interested in birth, like literally the birth of another person, but also the birth of a new job or the birth of a new situation. And it can feel kind of exciting. When and I bought a car today, I used Prius. So, you know, we've been talking about this, trying to figure out what to do. And so now there's a new car, and there is. It's a little bit of a birth. There's a kind of excitement. And uh, but we, we tend not to pay as much attention to when things fall away. We all, generally speaking, tend to like the inhalations and tend to ignore or not pay, don't pay too much attention to the exhalations. And even though, you know, in popular art, in our culture, there's a lot about death, it's an idealized form of death. And every once in a while, we stumble upon a more authentic or honest um, portrayal of death in a movie, let's say. And it's so refreshing. It's interesting. Often the, pro, uh, the times we read or watch a movie that's about death, that's uh, not in an honest way, it can feel quite upsetting. But when it's done in an honest way, it feels enlightening. It feels like even though there may be a lot of sadness, it also feels really good. I remember not that long ago, maybe six months ago, we saw a movie. Uh, we rented a movie that someone in our community here told us about. I think it's called Look Both Ways. It's an Australian film. Anybody see that film? A couple people. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good film about death. Well, I don't know if it's about death, but it's about the possibility of death, at least. Um, a young man, or a relatively young guy, gets cancer, a pretty serious kind of cancer, and just about a couple of weeks in his life of just that, the impact of going from this idea that, you know, I'm young and nothing's wrong with me, to I've got serious cancer that's spreading. And... Uh, just uh, you know, the portraying a person waking up to the truth of, of vulnerability or the truth of impermanence. 
I mean, just reflect right now how distance it, distant it is in our minds, each of our minds. The fact that this body, you know, all the stories in our mind about my life, all of that is going to end. And it's a real mystery that we're, of course, living with. But we're mostly not in tune with that. And then imagine if we had a, I mean, imagine what kind of life it would be if the basis, the, the real foundation of all of our important relationships, like the relationships we have with our parents, if they're still alive, and the relationship we have with our intimate partner or good friend, that the foundation was about this truth, the fact that this body and mind is going to change and die. And so that that was just woven into all of our relationships. If you have kids, part of your relationship with your kids, part of the relationship we have with our culture, meaning it's just part of our cultural rituals. In this chapter, Ajahn Sumedho talks about his years in Thailand and uh, Partly because he's a monk, but partly it's just part of the culture, even the lay culture, not just the monastic culture, to uh, cremate bodies and to watch the cremation process. So you, you know, here when more and more we're cremating, but it's it's usually done very privately. But to actually build a a pyre and and burn so that the air you can actually smell the body burning and uh, see the flames and they, they go through the ashes, they keep the ashes, you know. And that it's, uh, it's a, a different kind of ritual to, for the, you know, the community of friends and relatives of that person to sit around and watch the body burn away. So we can just imagine what that would be like and to have very direct, honest conversations. Now, if, if death is discussed, almost always somebody very quickly projects some idea of, like, to, to take away the mystery and explains it. Oh, yeah, well, we'll go to heaven or this happens or nothing happens. But basically put some explanation, some definition on this great mystery. But the fact is, we don't really know. I mean, I'm assuming nobody here knows. I don't know what that means to die. So, you know, the fact that Ajahn Sumedho put this chapter, A Matter of Life and Death, in this section that's about daily life practice, it's just a suggestion or a uh, sort of recommending maybe that we incorporate this as part of our daily life, that somehow this very basic fact of existence just becomes part of our ongoing discussion. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if we each challenged each other this next week or for the next few weeks to see who could 
bring this very basic fact up the most times each day. You know, just find ways, uh, either in our own mind or as we're interacting with other people, to just bring up that truth of death. You know, so like if you're driving with somebody and you see some roadkill, a dead squirrel on the side of the road, to instead of, you know, not saying anything, you might just say, well, that's going to happen to all of us. I mean, just a statement like that. Just a simple statement of truth. This, this is going to happen to all of us. There's one teacher, uh, Manindadri, who taught a lot of the Western uh, Westerners who have become teachers here in the States and in Europe. He's an Indian man, but he had lived in Burma and practiced in some of the Burmese monasteries with uh, Mahasi Sida, a really well-known, famous Burmese Buddhist monk who died probably in the late 80s. And uh, he would often say, it's the law. So when he would see something like that, it's the law, meaning this isn't a surprise to see a dead squirrel. or It's the law. It's what happens to beings. Beings are born, they grow, and then they fall apart. This is just how it is. So we'll report back next week. And not to do it in a not to do it in a way to be controversial or to be uh, dramatic, but just to state how it is. It's just interesting how how uh, inappropriate it feels to bring this up. You know the truth of aging, sickness, and death, that we just feel like we shouldn't talk about it. And how refreshing it is when we actually can talk about it. Or when a movie or a book addresses it in a pretty straightforward way for us. So this is from the first few paragraphs in this chapter from Ajahn Sumedho. Our society refuses to accept and really contemplate death we are so involved with life and trying to make everything nice during our lifetime that we tend to ignore the finale of life. So we're totally unequipped for it. If you think of what the most important events in a human life are, you realize they are birth and death. Well, the idea of birth, having babies, is dear to the hearts of people. But the idea of death is baffling. What happens when somebody dies? What does it mean? A little later he says, What we can know is that we don't know. We can know that we're still alive and we haven't died yet. And we can know that we don't know what happens when somebody dies. Now this may not seem like a lot, but it is very important. Because what most people fail to understand is that they don't know. Instead, some people will believe anything. They settle for anything, any kind of speculation or creepy idea. Isn't this true? And it's very interesting that the wonderful thing about this not knowing is it's actually a very practical uh, mind state. Practical in the sense that it's conducive of insight, of learning. In a way, the most conducive mind state 
is that basic humility, I don't know. And so if we sort of contemplate this with our friends, with our families, throughout our day, it will evoke this don't know mind, this basic humility or basic innocence. And uh, we'll be much more perceptive, sensitive in the world. Just like if we have a really strong view about what happens, like nothing happens, you die, that's it, this is all you get, your life, boom, that's it. Or you have maybe a more religious, fundamental religious view, you know, you die and then this happens to you. And if you're good, this happens, and if you're bad, that happens. But in a way, if that, those, those strong views, those strong definitions are a little bit like a life raft that we grasp onto. Of course, we don't know if that's true, but we pretend that we do. And then that's a kind of desperation. And so anything that might challenge that is very frightening to us, that idea this is what happens. And it's interesting to see this not knowing what a potent place that is for the mind to be, the heart to be. And at first it might seem like, uh, boy, who wants to be in that open, undefined, unformed place, like not knowing, and really knowing that we don't know. It's not just that we don't know, but we're consciously, actively remembering that we don't know. So we're, we're choosing to be, to sort of humiliate, I guess, or to be humble. Like to remember that we don't know. We don't know this very basic part of life, which is death comes, and what that is, what that even means. But there's a lot of freedom right there, just knowing that we don't know. Maybe you can even get a sense of that as you're reflecting right now. Part of the freedom, the most immediate freedom, is then all of a sudden we don't have to project that we do know. And that's a big burden off our shoulders. Not to have to feel that we know and have to defend our idea against all the evidence that, you know, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's not the only way to look at things. So once we have... Uh, sort of turn that corner, we've reflected enough about death that we understand that we don't know, then we can, there are some practices that we can do. Sometimes we call, one of the practices we call dying before we die. Arden Smedo says in this chapter somewhere, the way of meditation is to die before the body dies. So it's an interesting definition of meditation practice. To die before the body dies. So just to contemplate this in terms of what you know from your experience of meditation practice, what would that mean? I mean, what does that look like in that my actual meditation practice? to die before I die, before the body dies. 
So in meditation practice, you know, we all kind of know that we're practicing being awake or open or mindful with the conditions of the body and mind, moment to moment. And actually, that doesn't seem like dying. But when we really look at what that means, like what does that require to be open, mindful, present with the conditions of the mind and body? That means that we're not getting lost in the conditions of the mind and body. Indulging, getting lost, proliferating, oblivious to the fact that there are conditions of the mind and body arising and ceasing, but instead we're completely lost. So to be mindful means that there's a knowing, and what's being known is the different conditions of the mind and body arising and ceasing. So we're sitting there and all of a sudden maybe a memory arises and then some sadness arises in association with that memory and because the mind has a lot of momentum in the direction of mindfulness there's a knowing of the memory there's the knowing of the sadness as it arises as it peaks as it falls away as it ends before another mind state can arise that sadness has to end. But how many times do we see this? I mean, just just think, how many emotions have we had today? I mean, probably sometime today you felt uh, depressed or excited or really happy or really angry or really guilty. So think about all those different mental emotional states. Now, clearly, they're not here now, not all of them at least. Maybe none of them are here that you remember from the day. But how many were we really there when they stopped being there? How many times today was there a knowing, awareness, when that particular emotion, that particular mind state ceased? And we might have been mindful for moments when it was present, blooming, but we rarely notice when things end. We might have had a backache earlier today or felt really exhausted earlier today, but now that's gone. But did we see, where, was there awareness in the moment when that was there? Now, sometimes it's there, 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 and then just disappears. Sometimes it's there, and then it's slightly less there. There's a sort of a fade. It's, it's nice to see, but in any case, it goes from being there to not being there. So quite literally, because right now, who do we take ourselves to be? Well, generally, in some fashion, we take ourselves to be the particular conditions we're having in this moment, the conditions of this mind and body. So if we simply observe the conditions with enough mindfulness, enough interest, presence, we'll see that whatever we're taking ourselves to be right now, it will cease. So the basis for the psychological experience of self, it does cease all the time. But we just reestablish the sense of self with some other particular conditions that are now present. But with practice, with enough momentum and mindfulness, we can see that whatever we're basing the sense of self on, the sense of me being here, that's constantly falling apart anyway. And this is what we mean by, this is what Ajahn Sumedho means by, the way of meditation is to die before the body dies. Is that we're observing the mind-body process, 
moment by moment, whatever is happening, whether it's the observing of the breath moving, or the thoughts coming and going, mind states coming and going, sounds coming and going, whatever it is, there is a continuity in the awareness. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about the mindfulness having some momentum. It's like there are not so many gaps in the the quality of being present or awake. Gaps just means the mind's distracted or lost in experience, caught up in experience. So there are fewer and fewer gaps. There's more continuity. Then unavoidably, one of the things that will be known is this: what in Buddhism we call cessation. So there's a knowing, and whatever is being known ceases. Whatever the object is, could be a sound, could be sensation, could be a mind state. It doesn't matter. The what is observed is that condition, that present moment condition, ceasing. But see, it's not our habit to notice the cessation. We tend to like to notice the arising of experience. It makes us feel better. <laughs> oh, things are happening. You know? Oh, that's an interesting thought. Oh, I wonder what that thought is. You know, we indulge in that thought, and then we get excited about that sound, and then we feel the body, and we try to fix the body. And we're kind of jumping from one arising experience to the next arising experience. And we tend to be completely oblivious that all these conditions are ceasing right here in this present moment experience. It's just that the mind's not paying attention to cessation. So this is now, I'm kind of shifting into meditation practice, but all through daily life, through our conversations and then just through our general perception of the world, we can just be interested in cessation. Like how now it's dusk, the day is ending. Today, Wednesday, August 15th, is doing that slow fade. And it will cease at 12 o'clock tonight. This day will be gone. It will never return. And any thought we have about this day is just a thought sometime in the future. But the day itself is gone. It does not exist in any way. Just like yesterday right now. Yesterday, that's a thought right now. But the day, everything about that day, the 14th, it's gone. It doesn't exist. So just in our daily life, you know, when a meeting's over, you can just say, don't say it out loud because people will think you're weird. You can just say it in your mind. The meeting has ceased. <laughs> it is no more. Remember the scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but we can notice when things actually do cease, that they're gone. No more. And like even like a breath, seeing that it's gone, or the movie's over. Sometimes it's nice after a movie, like when you're watching at home or a TV show, to shut the TV off and to really feel that space, like, the news is over, and it's like, there's a gap. It's like you, the mind was sort of feeding off of that experience, having a life based on that watching, and then it's gone. And now it's that person who was watching the news is gone, too. And we have to recreate somebody. 
who's now going to be getting ready for bed. You know, I'm the person who's getting ready for bed. But in that moment that the news ceases and the TV's off, before we reconstruct a sense of self of somebody who's preparing for bed, there's that recognition of cessation. And often there's an uncomfortable feeling because we haven't trained the mind to be interested and relaxed at ease with cessation. So we can do it in a very ordinary way with just the ordinary endings of all parts of our life. All the ordinary saying goodbyes that we do, our interaction with somebody is ending, it's ceasing. This breath is ceasing. This part of the day is ending. And we can really be there for those endings. Acknowledge them out loud if you can with the people you're with, if it isn't too weird. And then in our meditation practice, we're doing exactly the same thing in a more refined way. It's really exactly the same thing as we observe the ending of the breath. And that moment that the breath, the last of the exhalation, goes out before the next breath begins. And then notice the ending of that in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath and then the very ending of the out-breath. And then notice when a mind state or a thought arises, just keep watching the thought. Like, for example, one of the interesting things is, even with um, strong pain, but for sure with even ordinary mild pain that arises in our sitting, you watch the pain come, and then you see the desire to move the body, right? You want to move the body to get rid of the pain. Well, if you can just observe the desire to move, just keep watching it with equanimity the desire to move, you'll see that it ceases without moving the body. You don't need to gratify the desire in order for that desire to go away. Think about how many desires we've had, strong cravings, that we haven't gratified. But where are they now? They cease on their own. Think about how many fears we've had that we haven't somehow gotten away of. I mean, it's kind of interesting we can be having been really caught up in really profound fear sometimes. And then a friend can call us on the phone, you know, and invite us out to a movie or to do something. And it's like, boom, that fear's gone. And, but we don't notice it because we're now thinking about what we're going to do with our friend. We don't realize that whatever mind state was weighing heavy is just gone. It has ended. to seeing the cessation is not to be in a hurry for things to end, but also not to be attached to things continuing. So because this is a, a relatively subtle thing to reflect on or to contemplate, not to think about, but to reflection in a more direct, immediate way of knowing. It's more subtle. It's not the tendency. So it's really important that there be a lot of equanimity. So when we're reflecting on any particular condition, we have to tease out any attachment for this thing to continue or any attachment for this to hurry, like for it to hurry up and pass away. 
that we have no preference for either one of those two things. And this is a nice way to relate to our life, too. Like, not to be attached to it continuing and not to be attached to it all being done with. Sometimes we have that feeling, don't we? Like, I just want this week to be over. I just want this day to be done. It's a little bit like the death wish, you know? It's like, well, why do we think next week's going to be any different? We're just going to want next week to be over, you know? And then the next week, I just want my 40s to be over. <laughs> just can't wait to retirement. And we keep doing that. That's, that's like being in a hurry. And the other is we try to slow things down. We had a really beautiful family gathering uh, last week, my dad's 80th birthday. And I forget who it was. Somebody asked him about what he'd like. And he said, I want another 80 years. And, uh, and the thing is, he meant it. <laughs> I mean, and there's something really beautiful about that kind of honesty. But it's also that it's, uh, it takes us out of the moment, in a way, to, to be basically wanting things to slow down, not to be moving so fast. But to really contemplate the truth, we have to find some equanimity that we're not trying to speed things up and we're not trying to slow things down. But we want to just see things as they are, contemplate things as they actually are. So here's Ajahn Sumedho talking about this a little bit. We're dying to selflessness, I'm sorry, selfishness, Letting selfishness die doesn't mean that you don't love your children. It means you're no longer attached to the perception of you as someone whose happiness is dependent on the belief that these children are yours, that they love you, that they can't live without you, and that you can't live without them. So he's taking something that's especially uh, conducive to attachment like kids. But you could just substitute anything in if you don't have kids especially. And so in order to be equanimous, you know, when that object arises in our mind, like our health, or like our children, or like our wealth, you know, now that the stock market has been going up and down the last few weeks pretty dramatically, some of you who have, you know, money market funds or money invested in the market in one way or another, I'm sure you notice that uh, the mind goes up and down with the market. We get afraid. So whatever, with whatever attachment that we have in our life to uh, see this possibility of equanimity that, that our kids, our love for our kids or our relationship to our kids, it doesn't depend on attachment. We can have a very beautiful, loving relationship understanding that things come and go that my, my children could die before I die. And to be really equanimous with that possibility. That doesn't mean that when our children die before we die, that this heart won't be crushed. It just means it won't be surprised because we understand that anything can happen. Same with our money. Same with our health. So living with cessation 
means that we're, it's never a surprise because we know that things cease. And we, and we know we don't know when even. That's just how it is. That's, this is the world that we live in. The stock market goes up and down, and we're not in control of how it goes up and down. The body gets healthy and gets sick, and we're not completely in control of how the body goes up and down. And it's true with everything in this world. Everything in this world um, is beyond our control, including our thoughts. So then, no matter what we're contemplating, no matter what particular condition we're aware of in this moment, it's like we're aware that it has the nature to arise and cease. I don't know when it's going to cease, but that it ceases, I know. And so if we have that understanding, there's a lot more freedom or lightness in our lives. And uh, in this chapter, he talks about awakening from the dream of life, or dying before we die, is this awakening. We're awakening from some dream that things can be fixed or made permanent in some way, that there's actually a place to dig in and find some permanence. So we have basically two options. One is to live a life where we're, and I don't think it's wrong to use the word, desperately trying to create some permanence. Or we can live a life where we're trying to come in alignment, come into alignment with impermanence, with vulnerability with the fragility of life. And we'll see if we just contemplate those two possibilities, we'll see how much freedom there is in coming into alignment. And we see how much fear and tension there is in trying to establish some permanency. Now, most of us try to establish permanency by staying distracted, by just filling our lives with distraction so we were distracted from impermanence from the fact that everything is ceasing, that things are rising and ceasing all the time. We're not denying the arising part, but we're just uh, conveniently distracting ourselves from the ceasing part, from the endings. And then, of course, when we um, when the particular conditions arise and we can't distract ourselves from it, what do we say? We say, why me? Why did this happen to me? A really poignant story. Um, Michelle McDonald Smith, one of the more senior teachers uh, in this tradition of Buddhism in this country, she teaches at the Insight Meditation Society. And she was with one of her aunts who was like 94 and got some terminal illness at that point, and Michelle visited her in the hospital, or maybe it was hospice, and the aunt looks to her and says, why me? And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it can seem sad, but it's really surprising that a 93-year-old person would be surprised by having a terminal illness. I mean, that that would be a surprise.
says, Arjun Sumedho says, The only real certainty in life is death. All these bodies will die. And death of this body is one of the important events in this life. In our meditation, we are learning how to die. We are learning how to allow things to flow according to their nature, how to be open, receptive, and in harmony with the way things are. And the way things are includes that we all that includes all that we experience within our lives, even the illnesses, the aging process, and death. And then a little later he says, It's ridiculous to think about butterflies and Persian miniatures all our life and ignore the very fundamental processes of human existence. When I'm dying, I don't imagine a butterfly is going to be much consolation or of any great import. And that's one of the great uh, advantages of doing this reflection. I remember somewhere, Carlos Castaneda, in one of his books, he's quoting his teacher, Don Juan. And Don Juan says something that about reflecting on death, how it strips away so much of the pettiness in our lives. To whatever degree we come in alignment with death, with the truth of cessation, to that degree, the charge we have around petty things falls away. I was doing some of these contemplations today, preparing for the talk, and I noticed how freeing it is, like how the things that tend to weigh on me don't weigh on me when I contemplate death, when I contemplate that things end. I mean, still I have to deal with what I have to deal with. I have certain responsibilities in my job and my personal life. But things are a lot lighter when we understand that things come and go. There's a beautiful scene, another movie that does a, a reasonable job portraying death. It's called Black Rope. And it's about uh, the French missionaries and the uh, native people back probably in the 1600s, pretty early on in North American history, um, in our history at least. And uh, there's a scene uh, where this uh, head of, of a, a group of native people is dying. And as they, they pull over, they're in, they're in canoes on the St. Lawrence Seaway, or not, I guess it wouldn't be the St. Lawrence River. and. Uh, and they pull over to some little island, I think, in the river, and he's about to die. He recognizes the place from his dreams. And uh, it's, I guess it was a recurring theme in his dreams, this exact location. And he's moved. He has this very strong thought that if I had known all these years that this dream, that this place was the place of my death, I wouldn't have been afraid. In other words, if I had known that I was going to die, if I had sort of had that very clear sense, oh yeah, there will come a time when this body and mind will cease, then living becomes much easier. So we can just experiment with that. We can just see as we make peace with cessation, become at ease with the truth that things end, we'll just see if our life gets easier. It just gets easier to do things that are difficult, things that are scary, things that are boring.
maybe I'll just end with a little quote and then we'll see what other people have to say. So this is near the end of this chapter. And he's talking about a fearlessness um, that arises as we contemplate death, as we contemplate that things arise and pass away. And it's not that the fearlessness doesn't arise because we've somehow transcended everything that's difficult. The fearlessness, from a Buddhist perspective or from the teachings of the Buddha, the fearlessness is that there's a recognition of the mind or heart that is capable of being open to all things. So it's not that all of a sudden our life is hunky-dory and there aren't problems. It's that we've discovered, we've realized the heart that isn't shook, doesn't, isn't disturbed by what comes and goes. In this paragraph he says, but we know, don't we, what's going to happen. And a lot of it is not very pretty, very clean or nice, but it's Dhamma, isn't it? It's the way things are. We begin to appreciate all of the Dhamma, not just the nice side of it, because we're seeing it in perspective through the awakened mind and through wisdom rather than through the self. The self will always be saying, oh, I don't want to be burdened. I don't want to be a burden on anybody. I don't want to have to lose control of my bowels. It will be terribly embarrassing. That's self-view. It's misery, isn't it? Because life doesn't go the way you want. And even if it does go the way you want, you will still worry about it. You think, what if? You know it's all right now, but anything could happen. And that's a thought that causes suffering. Life is fraught with dangers, and the self is always in danger. It's dangerous to be selfish. So actually, the death, the death of the self is a relief, nibbana. It's release from danger, from struggle and strife, and from all the suffering that we produce <coughs> out of the illusion of self. We live in a world, in a society that holds to that illusion. But in Dhamma practice, or meditation practice, we're challenging that illusion. We're not just trying to be clever and dismiss it, but are investigating. Is this really the way it is? Is this the real truth? What is the truth? And we're no longer looking for someone to come along and tell us the truth, because we know that we have to realize it for ourselves. The truth is here and now, to be seen by each of us for ourselves through the practice of mindfulness and wisdom. So I'll leave it here. Maybe people have some thoughts, your own life, that your own reflections on death, on loss, that you'd like to share with the group. Dildar. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say two things. One is that in popular culture... Uh, in what culture? Popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say things like, what would I do if today was the last day of my life? And, and, and 
that card is a free card. It's supposed to be a free card that allows us to be free and do whatever it is that we need to do. So the very fact uh, of the acceptance of that is, is a free
And then, so that's why in Buddhism there's often an emphasis on the mind state at the time of death because, I mean, who knows, but there's this discussion that that mind state at the time of death is the mind state that finds the best form for that mind state to continue in the momentum with the momentum that it has. But this is all speculation. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me, but it's but I have to be honest with myself. Those are just ideas. I have no proof. And maybe there are some people with really developed minds that have some psychic abilities, but that's just a thought, too. I don't know those people. And uh, But that's a useful idea for me to have, and maybe it's useful for other people to have. It's an explanation. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I don't really know. And even though that there's that explanation, this life, even with that explanation, this life ends. And the mind, the you know, so much of what I take myself to be is this particular story about this particular body and the particular set of experiences that have been collected in terms of memory. And uh, there's no thought that that continues. What continues is more the the tendency towards greed or the tendency towards generosity, these impulses in the mind, that's what really the momentum is around, the, the momentum to tend to react in an aggressive way or to, in a gentle way. Those uh, inclinations are what re- really kind of define the momentum of the mind that takes rebirth. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Good question. What else comes to mind, Jim? Um, I wanted to get um, your impressions on the idea of when people say, well, I'm going to plant myself, and people take, you know, take a journey or go in a certain direction to find themselves. The way it's presented in Buddhism, to my understanding, is that you have these thoughts that arise and cease, arise and cease. And way it sounds, it sounds like when someone says, I'm going to find myself, is that they're allowing the notion that your rational mind can take over and that you can actually find something in a, in a cosmology that doesn't have itself. So I'm wondering what you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. Did you hear back in the back? He's talking about, uh, there's in, I guess in popular culture, there's this sense of people doing things to find themselves, maybe taking a a leave of absence from work or whatever people might do, you know, to find themselves going on a journey. And uh, and just how that connects with what we've been talking about. What is that that people find? And I think sometimes uh, we can have a really unhealthy story about who I am. And we can do something that helps us replace that story with a better story. But it's still a story. So that's maybe the most superficial way that somebody might find themselves, is they might, and but this this would be a step in the right direction, where we uh, are able to let go of an old story that had been set in motion, maybe because of some abuse or just some particular conditions that we had as a kid, and then we just got caught in that story, and then at some point in our life we recognized we were caught in that story, and we made some choices that allowed us to drop that story and come up with another story. But it's still a story, 
And as a story, it's fragile. It's fragile to anything that arises that challenges that story. Like, oh, maybe I am no good. You know, maybe I never have been, never will be. So that that old pattern might reemerge if we get triggered in just a certain way. But maybe a deeper way that someone might use that phrase of finding myself might be more like pointing to the way the Buddha talked, just not using the words that the Buddha used. The Buddha, you know, wouldn't use the word myself. But someone could mean something similar if they mean by finding myself that that somehow they're making peace with the mind, with the heart, as it actually is. So really coming to terms with what it means to have this mind and body. So I think sometimes people will use that phrase, finding myself, but what they really mean is that they've come into a deeper alignment with the conditions of their life. And they're not opposed to those conditions as much as they might have been earlier in their life. There's a, a kind of acceptance or equanimity and understanding that this is just how it is. And it, it even means like an acceptance of the imperfections of our, con, of our conditioning, like the tendency to feel like a victim or the tendency to be aggressive. So it even can mean like really understanding that it is in the nature of this mind to react with aggressiveness or to react with being the victim. And, uh, and to just accept that doesn't mean to be blinded by it or even to act it out. It just means to understand that this is how it is. And, you know, I have to be aware that this is how it is and choose, make choices according to how it is. Um, and so I think people might say the same thing, though, that I'm, sort of I found myself, like how to how to work with this predicament, this mind and body predicament. But in Buddhism we don't use that word. But in other spiritual traditions they use the word self, but they just make a capital S. So they're talking about the self that isn't self centered. I mean it's it gets confusing. The Buddha just jettisoned the whole word, basically. That don't use that word. Don't orient around it because it's a confusing word. But, uh, you know, it's just language, and language is never perfect. I think we have to leave it here. If you want to make a really quick point, Jim. It is quick. I just have to go as far as the bumper sticker and stop. But it's very refreshing to hear you say that um, we don't know what happens after we die. Because we live in a world with other people who say they're quite certain. And it's hard to draw a line between what is knowledge and what is belief, because people can believe what happens or doesn't happen. But that's not the same as knowing we can't know. So if we don't have much time, I'll just go to this bumper sticker that's militant, agnostic. <laughs> I have, I have, I at least know heard of it. You don't either. You say that last time. I don't know if you don't either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's just sit with that. <laughs> I don't know, and you don't know either. <laughs> of course, we don't know if they don't know. <laughs> so we have to open to that, too. So we can appreciate our not knowing, 
and appreciate the openness that it leads to and aspire to integrate or open to this humility as a way of taking care of our life and taking care of all beings. Living and practicing to support the happiness and peace and freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease. And thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to see you here. here.